The great philosopher Kierkegaard said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Looking back only results in learning for people who have that time to think. And many of us are so busy with day-to-day -day demands that we rarely have time to reflect. And that's why we started What I Wish I Knew. It's for those moments when you realize that just a bit of insight might have come in handy if you had it in advance. I'm Mike Irwin. And I'm Simon Dore. So we talk with people from all walks of life, from startup entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes to weekend warriors, from artists and to designers, to even engineers who became designers. From those who dream to those who dream then actually do. They all have three things in common. None are perfect. All are humble and each have truly incredible learnings. In What I Wish I Knew, they share these lessons with you. So welcome to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw. Today we're excited because we have Dean Cook with us and Dean is, is CEO and co-founder of a, of a company called Smalltalk. And the goal of Smalltalk is to deliver language learning technology to help babies learn language. And, you know, it's a fascinating tale about how language develops in people. And we all know that as we get older and towards teenage years and adulthood, that it's a lot harder to learn language. And what Dean and his company have done is figured out a way to deliver many of those building blocks of language at a much younger age. So we'll hear about that. And Dean, was also the venture partner at Jumpstart, um, which is a Cleveland-based um, venture capital firm that's focused on um, life sciences. He was also co-founder, board member, president, and CEO of ServaLens, which he sold to United Women's Healthcare. And there's a very lengthy CV that Dean has, but I'll leave it at that and say, Dean, welcome to What I Wish I Knew. Well, I'm excited to be here, uh, Mike and Simon. Um, it's a great opportunity and uh, thanks so much for the invitation. So Dean, tell us how you got here. <laughs> so Mike, I'm, uh, I'm gonna describe myself really as a sales guy. Um, and, I, and I think Simon, it was good to know you have a sales background. And of course, both you guys have uh, sales and marketing backgrounds in general. Um, but that's really you know, what I brought all the way through my career. My first job out of college was selling soap into the grocery stores for Lieber Brothers Company. Um, did that for three years. Uh, found out that um, grocery store managers are relatively miserable people um, and they don't like uh, <laughs> people in suits uh, showing up, you know, with uh, still wiping their nose and trying to, to sell them end caps of uh, Rinso or things along those lines. But, um, you know, all the way through my career, I think, you know, sales, you know, whether you're always selling to people, uh, to organizations, and as a skill set, um, Usually uh, you learn to not be fearful of any situation pretty early in your sales career. Um, and that really serves everybody really well. It serves me super well in that I, I don't tend to be nervous about any environment. I'm confident in my communication skills and I'm really comfortable asking people to do things for me. Um, so, and that's, uh, you know, to get ahead in life, I suppose that's a big part of it. That's fantastic. Well, so, so tell us then, you know, so you, you went through sales and you've done a bunch of different things. And was there a trigger point or a catalyst, Dean, that caused you to take, to kind of shift from, you know, roles that maybe you had in the corporate world to more of an entrepreneurial path? Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, you and I met at a company called uh, HyberTech and, um, you know, I had been in field sales, um, uh, with cancer diagnostics, prostate cancer primarily uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, and um, 
the company was for sale. At that point, you know, Hybertech was owned by Eli Lilly uh, and that acquisition was not meeting the needs of Eli Lilly. So everybody knew that Lilly was going to dump Hybertech pretty soon. Um, but uh, I had an opportunity to uh, interview to be one of the product managers and um, move my family, including well, my, my relatively new wife and our brand new baby, uh, probably four month old baby, uh, moved to San Diego for a company that was for sale. Um, and, uh, you know, Mike, the, the biggest thing that I think I took away, you know, when you're in sales, you know, you're kind of kept a little bit in the dark, like what's in your bag, you have your goals, you know, you have your team that you work with, but you know, it's really results oriented. Um, you don't really get an opportunity to contribute to strategy. Like, why are we doing it this way? You know, there's not a whole lot of tolerance for that unless you're blowing away your numbers, then maybe you get a little opportunity. Um, so in my mind was this idea that when I got to San Diego and started to interact with the leadership of Hybertech, then I would understand why we're doing the things that we're doing that in the field sometimes felt not that great of an idea. Um, and really, I think at my experience at Hybertech, um, and indeed the company was sold within a year of me taking that job, <laughs> um, was finding out that the people running the company are not really any smarter than I am. Um, they might be, um, they've got the right resume to be there, but you know, I didn't really feel like I was entering rare air that there was like, wow, like your MBA from here and there, you know, cause Lily people, of course, they're going to come with the MBAs um, that I would be exposed to something that I really felt like this, it's going to be hard for me to hang in this group. Um, it was much more of like, wow, you're just regular folks like the rest of us making a sequence of uh, good and difficult decisions or working in, uh, you know, a strange environment and doing the best that you can. But, you know, uh, I don't see uh, any necessarily brilliance here. So it's not necessarily that I'm negative to who I did see or work with, you know, um, in that top echelon, but it's more that I could fit into that, you know, with the right experience and, and actually the, the way that my brain works could really be relevant and impactful to this organization. Um, but maybe in that particular role, you know, that was a, I don't know how old I was. I was in my maybe 30-ish um, and, you know, with a pretty thin resume. So I wasn't really in a role to make a huge impact, but I definitely felt like, yeah, I can, I can move into the marketing world. And from there, I did it for a career move to move into more running the end of, you know, not just selling for somebody else, but starting to make decisions. Um, and that, that's really my main takeaway there. Dean, we, we've had stories from uh, people who've been interviewed before and, and they talk about kind of the zigzagging and, and, the, and the synergy of that and the, and the effectiveness of their roles, i.e. one function to, to another, et cetera. I mean, I know you said you were in selling first and then you moved into product marketing. Was there a, and you said you suddenly found that you were, you were valued and you kind of qualified yourself in that environment. Was, was there elements of things like that in terms of your functional experience or was it more of your, your application or, or was it a bundle of things? Um, you know, I think, you know, even when I, I eventually became a vice president of marketing and um, I always define myself as really more of a sales 
person or a sales organization advocate. Uh, and when I had an organization, um, the, the, the actual marketing, I had somebody who really was a marketing person who knew marketing disciplines. Um, and I really felt what I bring to the table more is communication skills, um, distilling needs and forcing an organization to prioritize and get things done. Um, and again, um, not, um, <laughs> not to be negative, but I think sometimes when, when you're in sales, there's, there's a natural struggle between sales and marketing. And you know, uh, sometimes there's a huge barrier between sales and marketing. And sometimes in a good organization, I think it's, it's relatively more seamless. Um, but people on the marketing side of things might be viewed as bureaucrats by the salespeople, you know, that we've been, it's common, we've been asking for this for so long and we just don't get it. Um, so to really have somebody, um, what I took as my role and what I felt um, made me effective in that role was to really break down those barriers. And, and I'm most comfortable in organizations that um, are, uh, allow for that up and down communication, um, that it's not, it's not that hierarchy that, you know, well, it just comes down to you through the organization and you're not allowed to really work up and call bullshit on people. Um, that to me is, that's, there's many effective organizations that work like that. Of course, you know, the military is one example, <laughs> but um, you know, as far as where I would thrive, um, Number one, I don't bite my tongue very well. Um, so, but also just where do I enjoy myself and where am I most effective uh, would be in an organization that allows for that kind of communication, um, uh, you know, all across the organization. So we shift kind of to, to the more specifics of your entrepreneurial path, but Dean, as you look back at your past and your experiences, what would you advise to our listeners who are kind of thinking about either starting a company or, or, or thinking, how should they look back at their skills and their skill building as they sort of grow in their career? Well, um, I would suppose that, you know, having exposure to different parts of an organization is, is really good. I, I don't have the perfect resume. Nobody really does. Um, uh, you know, coming up through sales and marketing, um, you know, it really focuses you on the voice of the customer, meeting customer needs, identifying customer problems, um, you know, being creative around solving those problems. Uh, you know, I think that's really important, you know, as far as like what I don't have is, has, have I ever run like a P&L in a, in a large organization? You know, um, uh, have I, you know, those types of experiences that can really lend themselves well to, you know, I'm a CEO, but I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not really like, I'm not a CEO, like a lot of other, most other CEOs, I'm a startup CEO. That's, that's the, you know, humility to do anything and everything, um, do recognize that there are, I have these certain strengths and the things that we've already talked about. And then I've got my weaknesses, um, and that are outright weaknesses. And then I've got the things I can bluff my way through and do a reasonably good job, uh, until such time that we've, gotten to um, a level that we can attract somebody who specializes in that. Um, but, um, you know, I think being fearless, um, maybe not courageous, but, you know, fearless is, you know, not being afraid of failure, um, 
sounds, um, it's pretty trite, of course, but I think in the, in the field of like, if you want to be an entrepreneur, um, you definitely can't be afraid of feel, failure. Um, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you have um, a family or, or some other responsibilities that you're dragging around that require you to make a certain income, um, that might change how you do your entrepreneurial steps, um, you know, as a side hustle, um, you know, today, of course, there's a lot more that you can do. Like what I'm doing right now has hardware oriented with it. So I can't do a home loan and develop electronics, um, you know, hardware. It's just too, too expensive. Um, but there's so much that you can do. Um, you know, but I think that being, um, through doing is really where you learn about yourself, um, learn how to manage yourself and how to, uh, you know, the, in my journey, um, a company that I was with in the uh, Silicon Valley, um, you know, Adiza for 10 years is a huge part of my upbringing. Um, and the chairman of the board there uh, was an OBGYN who never practiced because he invented something during medical school, got a little bit rich and moved into venture capital. Um, but he was like at board meetings or any sort of interaction with a uh, management team, you know, just don't tell me, you know, don't tell me what you know, tell me what you don't know, what you're afraid of, you know, we need full clarity on where your blind spots are, or we're not going to get anywhere. Um, and I think that's, that's part of your self-knowledge um, is knowing <laughs> here's where everybody should be terrified is Dean runs the, the, the financial spreadsheet for this organization. That's a little terrifying. Um, so, <laughs> because I'm not that good at it. Um, but currently that exactly is what I'm doing and everybody knows it. So at least, at least they, <laughs> they understand the risk right now. Um, but I think it's, it's really through doing things, whether it's like, I want to have some clever t-shirts and sell them on Etsy. Um, everybody's got that idea, right? <laughs> Everybody fancies their little slogans that they think of on a t-shirt is, oh my God, I'm going to sell a million of these things. Uh, well, try to figure out the whole supply chain of like, how do you take that idea? Do you, are you going to buy the t-shirts? You can do print on demand. How do you get your store set up? And you're going to realize like, how much of this do I really want to do versus I want other people to do it for me, but can I afford that? You know, all that type of stuff, you know, it's through doing that. I think um, that's, that's how I've learned is through doing because I'm yeah. relatively uh, a little crazy, fearless as far as my career goes. That's uh, that's allowed me to do it that way. Dean. So I just want to link that though to, and you talked about the leadership skills. Uh, you talked about a uh, fearlessness, et cetera. But I just picked up on a point you said earlier about your career where you weren't afraid, I think you said to hold your tongue or, or a, a, a bite your tongue. Just, just resonate with us and the listeners what you mean by that. Because, you know, arguably in the world of business, you know, there can be a, a, a naivety here of whatever age you are or whatever function you are, where coming forward in the wrong way, you know, could equal, you know, a bad outcome. So, so just help the listeners understand here what 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 you meant first of all you you talked about historically you've you've never been you've always not just held back but how, how that's developed and i guess how it links into your um entrepreneurial role because I, I would argue you don't want to be necessarily you want the energy and the passion and you want to push but do you want to be you know what's the tipping point between and yeah, getting that pull and being aggressive. 
I'm not sure if I caught the early part of your question, so I'm gonna give an answer best as I can and then uh, ask a follow-up uh, to, to, to make me clarify if need be. Um, I do think um, one of the things at some point, you know, my, uh, how common it, it has been to, in the past, to work for one company for a long time. Um, my grandmother, uh, you know, was always with my, what she viewed as this job hopping, she associated that with, you know, what's wrong with Dean? You know, <laughs> why can't he hold a job? Um, not recognizing that, you know, I was, I don't want to call it strategic, but I was making moves based on, you know, I was moving up at, at a faster pace than I would have staying still. Um, but the risk profile of um, corporate America is become a lot different for your personal career than it used to be. Um, that nobody's safe from being uh, let go, downsized, forced into a different role. Um, the pensions are gone um, for the most part. You know, you're taking what what used to be be viewed as the safe route with large companies and. Um, you know, rising through the ranks over a 30 year career and, and earning, uh, you know, that type of, um, uh, you know, that that's a risky approach that has its own risk. That's a lot more than it used to be. Um, so being entrepreneurial, um, I view as less risky. Uh, the variable between that and staying put is, is there's less of a, a delta between those two things than maybe there used to be. And, and particularly now, I mean, I'm 56, um, you know, the people um, um, that I'm working with a lot right now are in their 30s, you know, their ability to be entrepreneurial and do the side hustle work, uh, split themselves between three different organizations and doing it part time, all those types of things are, are really new. Um, and I think allow for people to be an entrepreneur. You know, I, I'm also like, I, what I do for a living does not define me, right? So, you know, I don't, you know, I like being in circles where people don't really care what you do or what your title is and things along those lines. So, um, uh, but, you know, who are you as a person is more interesting to people about your children and the other things that you're doing with your life. Um, but that's the way that I think, I think recognizing that um, the, the entrepreneurial journey's risk profile is not, as big as maybe it sounds. Um, if you're doing the heavy lift of, <laughs> you know, something really novel, you know, something protected, large market opportunity, solving a need, you know, those types of that discipline is really important. Um, and some people learn that the hard way. You know, Dean, I got to say, I love that. I mean, you know, that the shifting of the risk profile, right? So prior generation, you know, you, you know, it was, that was the way to go. If you you know, you wanted predictability, you wanted reliability, and that's not the case anymore. But I did want to comment. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, working with younger people and how they're able to kind of juggle things. And I, honestly, I'm inspired by the younger generation. And it's not just because I'm an old man, but rather it's because there's an incredible array of talent of young people who really do want to change the world. They're very self-aware of what they want to learn and how to get there. And they're willing to do the work. And so, you know, I, I think we're collectively the big we. We're in, we're in a good place because there's a lot of talent out there pursuing things, and it'll be exciting. Even, you know, in a lot of ways, just looking at at, at things from afar and looking at at, at what happens. But want to um, 
shift gears a little bit and talk about language and talk about small yeah. talk. And if you can yeah. tell us the story, what, what are you doing and why? So, um, you know, it's funny because I, I um, one thing I want to caution you is that I'm not a language expert. And, and actually, you know, um, that goes back to what my career is, right? Which is, you know, I've got a marketing degree from a, um, you know, a, an average school that where I got average grades, started to sell soap for a while, got fired. That's a different story. Um, and then was in the medical field, right? So, you know, you're a, I'm a salesperson, so I'm taking information and translating it to, you know, laboratorians or physicians, nurses. I spent a lot of my career in obstetrics and gynecology. So um, high-risk pregnancy. So I'm working with maternal fetal medicine and, um, and, you know, during that part of my career, it was not infrequent that I would leave an office and, um, you know, somebody in the group would be saying like, thank you for your time, Dr. Cook. And <laughs> I'd be like, hold it, you know, like, just to be clear, you know, I have this deep and narrow knowledge in this specific thing. And so this way, not very good, you know, so not a physician, not a doctor. <laughs> um, so the story of small tech, small talk starts as um, me being asked. Uh, so you mentioned uh, I've done some venture capital work uh, at a group called Jumpstart uh, in Ohio and Cleveland. And um, we do tech-related investments, uh, Ohio-based tech-related investments. So a lot of technology spin-outs from organizations and colleges and hospitals. Um, a sister organization um, in Columbus called Rev1, um, similar makeup, uh, but focused on like Ohio State University and, uh, and a, a really important children's hospital there called Nationwide Children's Hospital, um, asked me to come look at a technology invented by a neonatologist. So, um, you know, a neonatologist is a pediatrician specializing in uh, neonates. Um, uh, so Natalie Matry is her name. Uh, she's a physician scientist. Um, but I was asked to do that because I had spent 17 years in predicting and preventing preterm birth. And when you look at who's populating the, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, it's primarily premature infants. Um, but I actually didn't, knew nothing about the NICU. So when obstetrics, once the baby comes, you throw it over the fence and <laughs> pediatricians catch it and, and everything is, it's different from there. It's a whole different physicians and you know, the business models are all changed and the revenue and everything else is very different. Um, but like I said, I'm, a, I'm an optimistic, interested person. So, and I understand, I've been in neonatology uh, settings before. Um, so the, the foundation of her work, she's a neuroscientist. Um, so she specializes in how the brain acquires language uh, during infancy. Um, her focus is on, um, her research focus has tended to be on premature infants or cerebral palsy. Um, so, uh, and in that setting of the neonatal intensive care unit. So when you're a baby, 10% of babies are born premature. And there's other reasons, of course, to, to, to head to the NICU, but, um, you know, but you have roughly 10% of babies that are born end up spending time in the neonatal intensive care unit. So that's a huge amount. Um, it's very expensive. One thing that happens is instead of going home and having mom hold you multiple times a day, and I'm just going to use mom generally, of course, very open to all the different important settings for, uh, for infants. Um, 
but mom's really important, you know, and a baby gets tuned to mom's voice when the baby's in utero, in utero. that's when the, the beginning of that uh, speech and language center starts to form. Um, and they have a preferential, a preference, like right now I can, if I'm, if my mom's in this building somewhere and I, that voice will, it's wired into my brain differently than, uh, than any other voice, right? Um, but if you go to NICU, um, you lose all of that, that voice exposure. So number one, emotionally, anybody can relate to, you know, well, babies, babies in need, babies in the NICU in an incubator that don't get to be held by their mom, their skin's too fragile. They don't hear their mom's voice. They're not able to feed maybe that, you know, very often with uh, early infants, they, that uh, suck, uh, swallow uh, instinct is not developed yet. Um, so you have a baby that instead of that warm nurturing and that voice environment, uh, it's replaced by an in intensive care unit, alarms, bright lights, some passing language. So emotionally, anybody can get there to understand like, wouldn't that, wouldn't it be nice to have that baby hear its mother's voice more frequently? And you can do that with a recording device and just, you know, place it in the incubator. Um, but it's actually the, the way the brain wires itself when you're born, uh, or the first months of your life, your sensory system is developing, right? You go from that warm, uh, in utero environment to now being out in the world, your vision system, uh, your hearing system. So your brain capacity, your brain is wiring itself around that your experiences really rapidly. Your brain's growing and it's connecting neurons, um, really rapidly. And that sensory system creates a foundation for a higher cognitive function. So it's really critical that it be wired correctly. So those babies that don't hear their mother's voice, they get a little shakier foundation. If they're there for more than a few weeks, their likelihood of needing speech and language therapy before school age is the majority of those will, will need that. And then again, some of those higher cognitive functions are on a little shakier foundation. So the outcomes not specifically because you know they have health reasons why they're in the NICU, but isolated around the time in the NICU is damaging to the brain. So, um, so now to get to the point, <laughs> um, bringing mom's voice into the incubator, um, that's obvious, not very novel. Um, having an egg-shaped speaker device that's designed for the infant environment and to fit in the porthole, um, not roll, you know, uh, be uh, cognizant of infection control standards. That's novel. We have a patent on that. Um, but using mom's voice as a therapy, uh, equipping the baby with a, a sensor-equipped pacifier so that the baby asks for mom's voice, now that's a therapeutic device. And now it looks like, you know, we have preliminary data showing that we're improving the brain. Um, speech sound discrimination is a huge predictor of uh, outcomes. So we can we can provide a therapy using mom's voice, connecting mom to their baby and making them part of the intervention with that baby. That's the foundation. And that's what we founded as Thrive Neuromedical. So it took me four meetings with Natalie before I knew Natalie's French <laughs> because she speaks flawless English. Um, she was raised in a bilingual environment. And the first few meetings I had with her was with these big groups. She's a very busy person. Um, I did all the market discovery work with neonatal intensive care units around the country um, and validated that there's a market for this program. It's not a huge market, but it's a nice sized market. Um, and I'm really interested in founding a company with her. And when we really finally got time together, she was like, you're missing 
the point a little bit. There's more to it. Um, the main thing that we ended up talking about is what impact foreign language, more than one language during infancy has on your brain, the positive brain impacts, the wiring of the brain for, for language that occurs then. If you do it with two or more languages, you get a better brain. It's the only time in your life that when you're learning a language changes your brain is during infancy because those two things are interlinked. interlinked. Even when you're a four-year-old or a five-year-old, if you're learning another language then, you're using the brain that you had you have and learning a language with the brain that you have. When you're an infant, learning the language creates a different brain and a better brain. And that's, that's where small talk comes from is how do we take, well, we have tons of research that shows a huge amount of interest in this, but how do we, um, you can't, you can't, well, number one, you can't really teach a baby a language, right? You're wiring their brain for language, but you can't, you have to be engaged. You have to be active. You can't just, you know, if you play Telemundo to your baby, your baby is not really wiring for Spanish, okay? Your baby will process a language they don't recognize as noise, just like we will. When, you, when the baby's interacting, an active learning concept, now you're getting brain changes, you're wiring the brain. So for babies, uh, early babies, the only thing they can control is their mouths. That's why our first device is pacifier enabled. Mm -hmm. um, our next device behind that is handheld, twisting, pulling, turning. Um, and then the third product in our infancy product line is more of an activity mat, but everything is contingency based on the infant action, foreign language reaction, wiring that baby for that language. And now once that's done in infancy, it's there for the rest of your life. So you can easily move into that language at any point. So, fascinating. you know, yeah, it is a fascinating thing. So what you're saying then is that the foundation that you would establish at that age is something that can't be replicated later. Right. It's the only time in your life to do it. So would it be fair to say, I just want to kind of give an analogy. I, I feel like when people try to learn, maybe me, okay, so I'll be me. Um, if I try to learn language at a later date, I, I instantly have this um, obstacle to it, this resistance to it. And part of the resistance is I'm constantly comparing the language I'm trying to learn to the one that I speak and constantly trying to translate. And that kind of prevents a barrier. But what I hear you saying is that if you're exposing infants to language through interaction, it's almost like it's slipping in without really the... Oh, it's absolutely effortless, effortless. And so the best language learners on the, planets, on the planet are babies. So when you're born, I think of the, the, the globe has, and I prepared for this, <laughs> um, 7,000 active languages right now. Um, so, uh, you know, some thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, it was more like 10,000. So the you know, languages are shrinking. Um, but when you're born, the, la the languages of the globe are composed of 800 different speech sounds, um, uh, like 200 vowel sounds and 600 consonant sounds. So during infancy, your brain, you start with this. Now, when I say here, I really mean like a step beyond you know, your, your ear function. It's really in the wiring of your brain, the, the making a distinction of a speech sound, like duh, guh, those are speech sounds. Um, so during infancy, during the first seven months of life, that brain goes from 800 speech sounds to 50 because the brain specializes because you're, you're born with um, whatever the number is, it's like close to a billion neurons in your brain. Um, 
and you don't really add neurons after you're born. Like you do some a little bit, but for the most part, that's the brain. You have your neurons. And then it's through your experiences, primarily in the first three years of life that you wire your brain, you connect those neurons, right? And so for speech and language, it's in the first months of life. Cause I said, that's a foundation, right? So, but that wiring is, um, yeah, you know, when you create, when you're correcting, uh, connecting neurons, you're creating like pathways. What are, what are things that are important and what are things I use a lot of? So that's, I'm going to grow those pathways and then I'm going to prune away the pathways I'm not using. So in speech sounds, all those speech sounds that I'm not exposed to, not interacting with, they're just going to fall away. So later in life, when you try to learn, you know, um, French, uh, the French R, um, or, you know, to comedic effect in, in movies, people with an Asian heritage, right? Trying to, uh, the, the L and the R sound in the English language, right? Um, that's a speech sound. So the reason why they, they don't hear it, their brain is not, was not wired to differentiate that speech sound. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if you can't in your brain differentiate it, how to reproduce it and verbalize it, it's almost, it's very difficult to learn. It's, of course, you can learn it, um, but it's really, really difficult. So what you're really talking about is Number one, like just the classic, this is, I'm going to take this brain that I have that's wired for this language and try to learn a different language. A huge element there is, is the, the, the speech sounds are, are different and I can't hear all of them and I have trouble verbalizing them as well. And then you, of course, set in structure and everything else that's uh, even more complicated. Have you had thoughts or views on, for example, which languages you would introduce and ultimately you know how far do you go with this you know do you throw a number of languages along the right. way and like you said you kind of articulated really well that the you know there's certain a uh, guttural sounds or accents in, in 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 certain languages that that play out differently so do you bombard a for example and yeah. therefore you 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 kind of give the best chance to a uh, maximize so it's a it's a great question and i think um I'm going to answer a different question first, um, which is through, I, I mentioned a better brain. Um, so speaks when you, when you're, when you're interacting with more than one language, which we've developed as a species to expect multiple languages during infancy. Um, so now we have a lot of monoculture, you know, monolingual cultures, um, but that you don't just create a bigger, center for lack of a better word with more you know consonants and vowels that you recognize you create even as an infant you recognize this is one language and this is a different language and you kind of create two different language centers so to speak um, what the brain develops then is the ability to recruit other parts of the brain to process language when you have more than one set of speech sounds that's where the uh, lifetime earning potential because of that better brain attention span, anything, any sort of executive function is enhanced. Um, your openness to language, you, you, you've wedged open your language center to, to more speech sounds and you have a more adaptable brain. That's, that's really the benefits. But you ask a great question as far as like, for, okay, it's me and this baby, what's the best thing for me to do? <laughs> is it to let's, let's get through Spanish and then let's go through French and then let's throw a Mandarin in there because we want a multi-tonal language as well. And I think probably I'm not the right person to answer the question. I think, um, I think one thing is the, uh, 
ours is really the first intervention, the first way that you could literally study easily what happens in the brain with a certain sequence of things um, and that, that could be answered that, that question. Uh, we do have a linguist uh, that, that we're very close to with that, that consults to the company. Um, she would probably be uh, better equipped to specifically answer that question. I think one of the things about Smalltalk, the company that we're really sensitive to is that the fear of missing out notion um, that, you know, we don't want to play on parental angst <laughs> that <laughs> I'm not doing enough. Um, oh, we've not, you know, you know, and you know, like anymore when you're raising kids, like, well, if you don't have that, that kid in playing shortstop by, you know, third grade and they're, they're never going to be a pro, you know, <laughs> I hate all that stuff, but, um, you know, we want to be sensitive to, um, we are talking about something that improves the brain and, um, you know, uh, those types of things, but we don't want to imply that therefore the more you do the better, or if you don't, you've missed the boat and now your child's going to fail. Um, really sensitive to that. And also that we're not technology standing in between you and your child, but we are something to use with your child. And, and, you know, we're, we're part of enabling something, um, as, and we're using real human voices, real women, real moms talking to real babies. That's our content. It's our content. It's not Disney. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, CNN anchors from different parts of the world. It's, um, it's real people, um, not actors. And that the power of the human voice is really what we're, uh, we're working with. You know, I want to ask you something that I mean, it, it, it would be fair to say that there are some cultures that seem to be able to master languages more so than others. And one that stands out to me is Germany, right? So you have a really specific language and you have a population that in general, I believe speaks other languages more fluently than just about any other country on earth. U.S. maybe less so, even though languages are part of our, you know, standard for college admissions and things like that. Can, based on your research or on your experiences, is there a reason why some cultures maybe either place more importance on language, on second languages, or are more effective at learning it? Yeah, I, I would just simply come from a, a little bit of a, the, an average guy response that, you know, we're, you know, where we're at as a country, um, you know, we're a very large isolated country with very little need to interact with other languages. You know, when I moved to San Diego, uh, I moved from Pittsburgh and um, uh, in San Diego, then, you know, you're the, the idea of hearing Spanish all day, every day, like really going anywhere and hearing Spanish was a little mind blowing. Um, and then, you know, I moved to Northern California just uh, about a year and a half later. Uh, and then you get a very heavy um, uh, Asian language culture um, as well. Um, so, you know, when you get to the fringes of the United States and the border areas or the, where there's heavy, uh, uh, you know, immigrant immigration uh, situations, there's a lot of languages. Um, so places like Germany and, and France or Switzerland, for example, you know, that's very common. Uh, some of those areas, those borders have moved around. Um, I think there's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of automatically in the household. And then those brains are really able to adapt to languages a, a lot better just for all the reasons that we've talked about. Um, when, as far as like 
specifically for our product, um, we did talk with, uh, we did a large focus group with uh, monolinguals uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and not by design, but that's who showed up. Um, and, uh, and then a large group in Phoenix uh, that was uh, exclusively with one exception, bilingual families and trilingual families, um, because that's who showed up. Um, and the, uh, the product interest from multilingual households was, I mean, we, it wasn't a statistical uh, effort necessarily, but um, was slightly more enthusiastic about our product than a monolingual uh, culture. Um, because when you are in a multilingual environment, there are rules, so to speak, that you're supposed to follow to, for the baby, uh, to not confuse the baby. I think some of it's not really well-founded uh, uh, ideas, but um, that we actually solve a different problem for those people. It's like, well, you know, we're supposed to, like my husband's supposed to speak Arabic and I'm supposed to speak English, but frankly, in our household, we mostly speak English. And so we, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. And his family's mad. Um, and so our product is actually a solution uh, for a problem that they have. Um, and you would think that, and uh, many people ask, well, like what percentage of households are monolingual because they assume that that's our market and that's actually not the case. And so on that note, I mean, if you think about success for small talk, your company, is it, it I kind of get what you're saying that success isn't strictly that there's a new generation of polyglots that are coming up because they were exposed to languages at younger ages. But it sounds like what you're saying is that in the process of that, the children are developing brains that enable them to learn or adapt in ways that even go beyond language. Is that true? Absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, we were talking this morning, um, you know, with my, uh, my marketing team, um, how, when I founded the company, um, and, you know, for the first year or so, I really struggled with that. Number one, I would, you know, talking both about babies in the NICU and babies at home, it confuses people because, you know, one, you know, babies that need their mother's voice versus babies that, uh, you know, we're going to help with uh, foreign language voice. It gets confusing for people. Um, but um, so what we, what we were really talking about at that point was, more the messaging that I was providing to people, potential investors or, or anybody was more about the brain impact, the positive brain impact, partly because I had not really frankly come to grips completely with just saying foreign language for babies because people immediately go like, hold it, what? Like, you know, um, and I know you saw my last update where I said, uh, you know, um, you, you, can't you can't teach a baby a foreign language, it's going to annoy the baby. Uh, and it won't work. Um, and that's true, right? We're not teaching them a foreign language, um, but we are through them interacting and asking for a foreign language, which they're super interested in. Um, in just 20 minutes a day over uh, three weeks, we make brain changes and we can prove it because we're going to publish a study here shortly um, with brain imaging and everything. Um, that, that's the actual, like what you're saying is, is really the impact is is it's enriching for the brain. However, what do we see with small talk is um, we're basically creating a new category. It's just from a straight business point of view, right? You have a language learning category that is, you know, stretches across, you know, Duolingo and Babbel and all those things. And then you have a number of technologies for early language education for, uh, for toddlers or for preschoolers, nobody doing anything in infancy, even though the brain is really thirsty for language. So we're 
we're going to create that market, dominate that market. We're really hard to compete with because we have outstanding patents in this area. Um, but then we're going to migrate our brand into preschool language learning. Um, in terms of the development, and it's, it's quite a, again, I come back, it's, it's a raw playing field in, in, in some respects because there is, you know, uh, purposeful studies on left brain, right brain, you know, how do you, you know, nurture that, not least, I, I propose, I'm sure you're going to say that happens in, in infancy too, but how do you, you know, how do you, you know, how does your model look at, reflect and engage in that, or are you keeping it as simple as possible in terms of the outcomes? Yeah, I think as simple as possible uh, is probably the, the right way to think about it. And my nature has been, even though I'm, I mentioned my, my middling marketing degree, um, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by science and I like translating science for, for other people, whether they want to hear me translate it to them or not. <laughs> you can ask my family. Um, but, you know, I think um, keeping it simple, foreign language for babies, what we found is, you know, most, we've done a lot of work with moms, as I said before, but not exclusively. So I'll, I'll use moms as shorthand. Um, you know, parents, the idea of language skills for their baby uh, ranks above uh, sports skills, um, uh, artistic ability. Like it is a hope that it's so common um, and that most parents literally will find a way to expose their child to another language during their infancy. Mm -hmm. Just simply, they think it's good for the brain. They heard it's good for the brain. Um, so it's really, it took, it took our research with about a thousand uh, women to really discover that kind of hidden market and instinct. Um, so I think keeping it simple to your point is really important for us um, that, uh, but we also wanna make it for people that want to kind of scrape away at what we're saying, what claims are we saying? Uh, and where does that come from? You know, we're a science-driven company. We want them to find, we're developing right now a, a for-consumer PDF, for, for lack of a better word right now, that's its current format. But if somebody really wanted like something written to the average consumer, but it's fully referenced uh, and was written by a neuroscientist and a linguist, um, we have that. Um, if, if, if the mother-in-law is like, you're crazy, you're confusing the baby, you know, stop it, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and they want to really have something uh, or they just have their own interest in what, what exactly is going on in the brain. You know, we want to be prepared for that as well. And as a leader, Dean, you know, you, you come across as, as structured and a, a methodical, but at the same time, an entrepreneur is, is looking at innovation and a, a development. How do, how do you manage that? How do you manage people like me just asking you those questions or, I'm sure you're getting it every day. You know, somebody says, well, what, a, a, what if you could do this? And what if you could do that? What, what's your, yeah. your kind of what I wish I knew? Look, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to me right now on this podcast, this is what oh, you should be doing. It's, um, you know, what, what you had mentioned, um, you know, Simon, uh, in, during the introduction about, um, you know, being at a point in your career where all of a sudden it opened up for you. You could actually, you know, use your wheelhouse, what comes your experience and what comes naturally to you to help other people. Um, you know, I've, I've been asked to, you know, through Jumpstart, not only do we invest in companies, but, um, you know, we, we kind of coach early stage companies. So a lot of entrepreneur coaching. And I always, 
you know, I'm reviewing pitches or just talking to people about business plans. And I'm always clear, like, you know, we're going to go through all the things that this, you know, Q&A is going to do, but like, you're the CEO, like you have to, you have to know, you know, like I try to be gracious about accepting input <laughs> and making people feel good. I don't want to be argumentative with people, but it's ultimately up to me. And you can't just, you know, jerk around constantly changing based on different people's input. You have to have clarity. And then the flip side of that is you can't be obstinate. You have to recognize when you're wrong. And, and ultimately for us, like, you know, we're going to be um, shipping product in October, right? Um, so, you know, we're doing in, in-home testing. We've had a working prototype. Now we've got a commercial version of the product uh, ready for in-home testing and all that type of stuff. But, you know, once you really go commercial, um, I've got to listen to my customers. Um, I'm hoping that they don't want hardware changes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we have content that we can adjust. We have uh, our app that we can work with. Um, we can change the firmware and the product. But um, their, their input is critical and how they use the product and how they want to use the product. That's critical. Um, I'm most interested in that. Um, but I've developed a clarity about the business plan that I'm pretty sure of. Um, and, um, that I probably will not easily waver from unless it's really the customers telling us that we're, we're not, we're not actually that compelling. Um, but for the time being, I'm, you know, I can, I try to answer questions truthfully and, and, um, and I'm always happy to reveal like when I'm just, you know, sometimes I'm translating things I've heard my co-founder talk about and I'm pr pretty skilled, but again, like, like we talked about with me being called Dr. Cook every once in a while, you know, that, that deep and narrow knowledge about something really specific. And then people infer that you also know all these adjacent things, which I absolutely don't know, including maybe even the terminology. So I'm revealed immediately as a fraud. <laughs> so I'm careful about that, right? Um, I'm, I'm no language, uh, no language expert, but um, I think as far as the business plan of small talk, um, I'm, I'm an expert in that, of course. And um, I would say right at the stage that we're at, we're pretty locked in uh, with how we see this uh, unfolding. Well, Dean, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I've got to say that um, that I hope you succeed. You know, for several reasons. One, you know, a longtime friend, that kind of thing. But as much as anything, I hope you succeed because I believe you can have a big impact on the world. To the you know, from the standpoint of you know, making better brains and, and expanding language capacity is a is a wonderful thing. So, really enjoyed this conversation, and we appreciate your time. Well, thank you uh, to both of you so much. Uh, really flattering to be invited. And I've uh, become a fan of the, the podcast um, and, you know, had an opportunity to, to look at uh, who's, who's been this way before. And, uh, you know, so uh, it's really uh, flattering to be invited. It was a great conversation. And um, thank you so much for the best wishes. Um, you know, look for us at CES in January. We're going to be making a big splash there. And uh, 2022 is going to be um, just amazing for small talk. So thank you so much for your time. We do hope you enjoyed this podcast. And thanks for listening to What I Wish I Knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Dorr. Please join us at whatiwishinewshow.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please share what I wish I knew with Mike Irwin and Simon Daw with your friends. We welcome your feedback and recommendations of new podcast guests and ideas on topics. 
If you have business challenges, we're also available for advisory and consulting roles. We'd be delighted to listen and help. Just send us an email. Our address is hello at whatiwishinewshow.com.